Bible Interact is a group of Bible scholars and biblical archaeologists who promote the Hebraic nature of Scripture and view the two Testaments as one unified message. They explain how they use a first-century approach to searching the Scriptures, and they share their methods and discoveries for discussion and dialogue. They invite your comments and participation on BibleInteract.tv, where you can also find more teachings, self-study quizzes, webinars, and interviews. Shalom. I am Dr. Ann Davis with Bible Interact, and today I'm going to talk about a field of study called textual criticism. Now, don't don't get nervous on me. There are two words, text and criticism. Text means the text of Scripture. Criticize does not mean to deny the Bible or, you know, to find fault with the Bible, things like that. It means to critically analyze. So textual criticism critically analyzes the text. In particular, it's a field that looks at all the old manuscripts to see where changes occurred. We don't have this problem in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, the the uh, Hebrew scriptures seem to have been copied faithfully. We know that scribes who copied, because there was no printing press, everything had to be copied, and the scribes who copied, there were certain rules for copying. And if there were errors made in the copying, because sometimes when you go to write something, you know, you may add a letter or delete a letter or something may happen. If if the authorities deemed it a small enough error that it could be explained in the margin, that's what they would do. They would explain it in, in the margin. But if it was a significant error, the the um, vellum leather vellum scroll had to be thrown away and started over again. That's the Hebrew Scriptures. The New Testament is very different because by the time of the New Testament, uh, paper had been um, it had been discovered in Egypt. The word paper comes from pap- the pap- papyrus, which is a reed that grows in you know in the in the waters of of Egypt. And Egypt had used paper made from papyrus for a long time, but it wasn't until the Roman Empire spread the use of paper that it became widespread throughout the Roman Empire. So during the New Testament times, the 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 message of Christ was um, was spread first by word, and then it was written. There, you know, Paul wrote letters, and the Gospels were written. There were written texts. They were written on paper, not on scrolls. And the other thing that you need to understand is that the early Christians, we can see, believed that Christ was going to return at any time. You know, um, in the in the book of Acts. We see that, and I have to go to the book of Acts to get the exact word in a minute. Um, let's see, when it's, uh, let's see, it is, okay, when when they had come together, they were asking Yeshua, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And Yeshua answered, you know, it is not for you to know the times or, or ages which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But they were expecting him to return at any time because they knew that the Messiah that God had promised was going to bring the kingdom of God to, to earth. He was going to destroy the enemy. Now, in, in the ancient world, the enemy was Rome. So he was he was going to def- defeat the Romans, um, allow the Jews to have their own kingdom, um, which would be a kingdom of 
of heaven or a kingdom of God on earth. That's what they were expecting. And then he was he was crucified. He was killed. And he was resurrected out from the dead. And they said, well, wait a minute. When are you going to return? When are you going to return to bring the kingdom of God to earth? When are you going to return? And they expected that to happen at any time. So we can see from the copying of the New Testament manuscripts on paper that this was copied quickly and to, to get the word out, get the word out, get the gospel out, get it out to all the Roman Empire, get the word out. And there was no attempt, as in the ancient Jewish tradition, to check every word, every spelling, every letter, every everything. There was no attempt to do that. They were just copying and rushing in the copying to get it out to get that gospel, to get the good news out about the Messiah who had been dead, but God resurrected him to life, and those who believe in Yeshua will be resurrected to life also at some time in the future. So what happens with the New Testament, and the field of textual criticism is predominantly for the New Testament, is that it takes a look at all the old manuscripts, and it goes back to the very oldest manuscript, and then it can see that certain things changed, Maybe in the copying, there was a copying change. Sometimes um, a verse was uh, unclear, and the person who was doing the copying would add something for clarification. So the field of textual criticism critically analyzes the text to see what is the most likely original. That's the field of textual criticism. It's a field of study to 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 try to uncover the most likely original texts of the New Testament and to see where changes occurred. Now, the changes that occurred um, crept into our our Bible. And um, it wasn't, and, and we get, you know, the field of textual criticism didn't start until, you know, about 100 or or less years ago. I mean, it's really a very modern field. In fact, it wasn't even 100 years ago, maybe 50 years ago. That it, it, It's a modern field of study to go back and try to see the most likely original. That's the field of textual criticism. And we're going to have fun with this field of textual criticism because I'm going to go back and I'm going to show you certain parts of Scripture that you may have learned one way, but we now know that it was something happened. There was a change, or uh, something was added by the editors for clarification, and and it's not the original. And uh, you need to understand, you know, what the original was and what changes have occurred, and have those changes made any um, change in the sense of meaning. Um, all right, let's let's take a look at some of them, and then we'll draw a conclusion at the end as to whether there's any change in the sense of meaning. All right, I'm going to take you to Mark chapter 9, 31. This is an interesting one. All right, and the the prophecy was that Yeshua would rise from the dead on the third day. This is in Mark 9, 31. He would rise from the dead on the third day. Now, the what textual criticism has determined is that that, that was not the original. <laughs> The original was after the third day. It should read, he would rise from the dead after the third day, not on the third day. And this is really important because, now I'm going to take you into the understanding of, of when 
Yeshua was resurrected, when he was crucified, when he was resurrected. And this, which I'm going to explain, is is fairly commonly accepted now. Now, not everyone accepts it. The, the traditional thinking is that he was crucified on Good Friday. He rose on Easter Sunday. And some people still hold to that. But I... I um, Academics and, and you know people who who study the scripture are, are in fairly general agreement um, of what I'm about to tell you. All right, we think that Yeshua would have been crucified on a Wednesday because it says that, and of course it was Wednesday at three o'clock. All right, now when the sun set, it would become the next day. Our days go from midnight to midnight. Their days went from sundown to sundown. So they had to hurry. The ladies had to hurry and bury him before the sundown because the next day, which would have started at the sundown on Wednesday, was a Sabbath. Now, that was not the weekly Sabbath, which is Saturday. That's not the weekly Sabbath. It was the first day of Passover. It was a sacred day. It was a Sabbath to the Lord. It was a holy day to the Lord. So the that first day of Passover would have been a Thursday. It was a, it was a holy day, and they could do no work on, on the Sabbath. So on Friday, the ladies came to the tomb, and he had been buried very quickly. So they, they took the time to bury him properly. They, they anointed him with oil. They wrapped him, and, and, and that com- completed the, the, the burial procedure. That would have been on a Friday. Saturday was the weekly Sabbath. They could do no work. Early Sunday morning, the ladies came to the tomb, and the rock in front of the tomb had been removed, and the wrappings were still there in the form of the body, but the little piece of cloth that was over the face had been put to the side, and he, and his body was gone. He had been resurrected. Now, if we follow the the three days, if it's on the third day, he, he would have been crucified on Wednesday at 3 o'clock, then he would have risen Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. He would have risen on Saturday at 3 o'clock. But apparently it did not occur until the nighttime hours of Sunday, which would have been after the third day. So after the, the Sabbath. And Sabbath would have ended, weekly Sabbath would have ended um, when the sun set on Saturday. So it was after the, the sun set on Saturday that he was resurrected. He would rise from the dead after the third day, not on the third day. So that's an example of of what textual criticism has has been able to uncover for us. It's kind of interesting, um, and it, it it helped us understand just when Yeshua was was crucified and when he rose from the dead. Um, now, there's uh, most of the uh, changes from copying were unintentional. Occasionally, you get intentional. And the intentional changes were to clarify difficult readings, or sometimes the, those in copying would find something that they, they thought was offensive, so they made changes. Let me show you um, some more examples of changes. It's really kind of fun to go through this. I'm going to take you to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. All right? And the Gospel of John, chapter 5. In verses 1 through 9, we get a, an account of Yeshua who went to Jerusalem and um and, and then in verse two there there is in Jerusalem by the by the sheep gate a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda having five porticos and these lay a multitude of those who are sick, blind, lame and withered. Now in my 
edition, which is the New American Standard Bible Reference Edition, there is a bracket. And in the, the following the bracket, it says, Waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever, uh, whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. afflicted. End of brackets. So that whole passage in brackets was added. And there's, there's actually a comment here. What does it say, the comment? Verse 3. Um, let's see. Many manuscripts read. Okay, that doesn't really explain it. But the, the brackets explain it. The, from, from the field of textual criticism, you go back to the earliest manuscripts, and they do not have this account of the angels moving the waters. They do not have it in there. And in the later manuscripts, it appears. So it, it, it seems that it was, was added because it's not in the earliest manuscripts. And we think it was probably added because it was an explanation. That was the tradition, the tradition of the time as to what caused the waters to move. Um, and it was angels who were causing the waters to move. Now, these waters came from the pool of Siloam, which is, um, well, actually, it came from the Gihon Spring, which is outside, uh, um, was outside the gates until the time of Hezekiah. And and the, the earth, you know, causes, you know, the waters to rise. If you walk through the, the Hezekiah's tunnel, if, if the water has risen to the point where it's too high, you can't walk through the tunnel, but then it recedes and you can walk through the tunnel. So something underneath is causing it, but they thought it was angels that were causing it, and they added that passage. So it's it's just interesting. It doesn't really change the meaning. Uh, the the meaning is that Yeshua healed a man at the at the pool of Bethesda. He he healed a man, and then if you read the account and you go into the artistic nature of the language, you'll understand the the underlying depth of meaning about that healing. So it doesn't really change the message, but it is kind of interesting to see that it was added. Now, here's another one which is, is kind of interesting. Take a look at uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 8. Now, this, this one is really interesting, and, and every, all, everybody's in agreement on this one. All people who, who work with the Bible are in agreement on this one. In John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, there is an account of the woman who was caught in adultery. Uh, let's see. Early in the morning, Yeshua came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now the law, now in the law of Moses, uh, now uh, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And, you know, the account goes on. But in the earliest manuscripts, that story of the woman caught in adultery is not in the earliest texts. It does not appear until later texts. It was apparently added. Why it was added, we don't know. It has not been taken out of modern Bibles because it is such a well-loved account, they haven't taken it out. But it was not in the earliest text. It was added at a later time. Okay, let's take a look at another one. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 8. Ooh, we all love this one. Romans chapter 8. Okay. Now, if you read the King James Version, if that's your Bible, here's what you will read. 
There is therefore no now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So there's no condemnation if you're walking after the Spirit. There is con- condemnation if you're walking after the flesh. If you read, pro- you probably have a more modern version. My New American Standard Version has deleted who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, because it's generally agreed that that is an addition. And you, you really, I think you get actually a different um, perspective, because if in the old way, there's no condemnation if you're, wa- if you're walking after the spirit. Well, if you belong to God, there's no condemnation in God's eyes, because you belong to him, and at some time in the future, you're going to come to him in righteousness. And that's what I call the first aspect of salvation. It's being rescued or delivered or saved from death unto life, which is a promise of something future. What I call the second aspect of salvation, which I guess you call sanctification, but um, is being delivered from the consequences of the world, which is pain and suffering, and you do that by walking in righteousness, walking with God. Now, you don't have to walk in righteousness. You don't have to, to, you know, to become righteous in this life now in order to be saved. All those with faith in Yeshua are saved, but then you are encouraged to move on to the second aspect of salvation, which is in your life now, which is walking in what God has made available to you. And so I think by adding who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit might lead to some, you know, nuances that may not quite be correct. All right, let's see, I'm going to show you another one. Another one is in Mark 16. And we go back to Mark, the Gospel of Mark. And let's see. Mark, let's see, Mark 16. Um, all right, I'm not there yet. <laughs> I went to something else I'm going to do in, in Mark. Okay, I'm almost there. Mark 16, okay, here we go. Now, <clears throat> this is kind of interesting. And if you have a modern... Uh, in um, version of the Bible, it might explain it here. In in Mark, the the um, there is a longer ending that came into our tradition, but the field of textual criticism identified the, the end that that was added. So the original manuscripts have a shorter ending. The later manuscripts have a longer edit ending. And in my version, the New American Standard Reference Edition, we'll read it here. Let's see. All right, starting in verse 19. I'm in Mark chapter 16, verse 19. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, to his disciples, He was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they, the disciples, went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by signs that followed. Now that's the ending of the short ending. So the Lord was working with them to manifest the glory of God through the, the Holy Spirit that, that came to them after, after his uh, resurrection. 
and that's how he was working with them. He was working with them um, through, because when we make Yeshua Lord in our lives, we become disciples, we become servants of the Lord, and we walk in righteousness, and, and signs and miracles are supposed to follow us. And that's how the Lord was working with them. Now here's what was added, and it's actually in my Bible, in a bracket, and in parenthesis, it's in my Bible. And they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. Oh, let's back up and see who Yeshua was talking to. Wait a minute. We have to look in the context. Uh, and I'm in, um, <laughs> I'm trying to find Mark uh, 16, 14. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven, and he said to them. So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken. So um, he was talking to his disciples, but the addition says they promptly reported to all, all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. That was added. And um, now, does it change the message? It, it does. And why was it added? Um, because in the original they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by signs that followed. And here, instructions to Peter and to his companions, and Jesus sent them out from east to west, and they're, they're proclaiming the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. So that's really what was added. It was a, it was an expansion, an explanation. What is this gospel? It's the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. That's what the gospel is. And that got added uh, to, to explain uh, the gospel. Now, there's another one I'm going to take you to in 1 John, um, way in the back here, 1 John. Uh, chapter 5, verse 6. This was the first one that I actually was made aware of, and it disturbed me to even consider that my Bible was not completely, completely, completely accurate the way God had given it. It, it really disturbed me. But in time, I've, I've been able to work through these 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 changes, and, and they don't change the message in any significant way. That's the important thing. They don't change the message in any significant way. But when you get into uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. And it goes on, and it is the Spirit who bears witness. Now, if you go into the King James Version, you're going to get something different. You're going to get, and, and different versions do different things. They've added the word Spirit. So, the one who came by water and Spirit and blood, who is Jesus Christ, or by water and blood and spirit. Some of them have the spirit before the blood, some have them after the blood. We think it was probably added because water um, indicates baptism, and that was the first thing. Yeshua was baptism by John, John the Baptist. And then the blood is his crucifixion. And now, where does the spirit fall in? The spirit falls in after the crucifixion because that's when the, the gift of the Holy Spirit came. So, so they, were, they added here water, blood, and spirit, um, and but we can we can see that that was uh, that was an addition that and it should not be there. It was not in the earliest manuscripts. Now the last one I don't have much time for, but it's probably the most important, and that's the Great Commission. And I'm going to turn you to Matthew chapter 28, and we read the Great Commission in verse 19. Let's see. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
So this is where this this is a solid um, verse that's given for the the theology of the Trinity: the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The problem is that nowhere else in the New Testament does it talk about baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It all talks about baptizing in the name of Yeshua. Um, so we get, for example, in um, Acts two eight. Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, not in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 6.11, You are sanctified, you are justified, in the name of the Lord Jesus. And in Galatians, For as many of you has been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. So all of the manuscripts that we have in our possession have, you know, the Great Commission in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't line up with the rest of the New Testament. And so um, some people suggest that perhaps that 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 Trinity statement in the in the Great Commission was not in the original. But I will leave that up to you to make your own decision. Shalom.